If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com choice for the rules and the leaderboard. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. And today we're going to talk to William Fabia, or Faber, I'm going to get Will to pronounce that because he does it so well with the, <laughs> the accent, um, who's going to talk to us today. Now, I'm sure that Will's not coming as a stranger to quite a lot of people. He's done a lot of training. He studied extensively in Portugal with Nuno Olivero. He's competed in eventing, jumping and dressage. He's a musician. He does lots of other things that we'll talk about through our chat today. But let's get started. How are you today, Will? I'm wonderful and lovely to be here with you. <laughs> oh, great to talk to you too, Will. And I'm sure you've got lots and lots of brilliant information for our listeners. We'll try. Yeah, I'm sure. Before we even get started, what about a favorite quote, just so they can get to know you? Well, one of my favorites is by Bill Steinkraus, the great American jumper rider, who said, if you can't get the horse to like it, it's never going to be very good, talking about the training. And I think that's one of my favorite ones because it really comes down to that. I mean, the horse has to actually like it. And I'm amazed how many people in the world today, it seems like the whole riding world has moved in this direction towards this adversarial approach to the animal. <laughs> you know, mm. it's us against the animal and we must make it do this thing, you know, that we want it to do. And we can only do that by you know, enforcing, you know, this behavior that if you do not do what I do, I will, you know, yeah, do whatever yeah. I will do to you, beat you or whatever the case may be until you do. And sadly, that has become so pervasive in what we see. And it's such a misery. I go and I watch people today riding horses at horse shows or here or there, even, you know, riding down the trail mm. and they're out of balance. The horse is out of balance. They're hanging on the horse's mouth. People are being taught to actually pull against the horse's mouth while they're riding. Instructors are telling people to hold 10 pounds against the horses, you know, in your hands when you're riding. And, it, it, you know, that should be a no-brainer to anybody to understand that if you are pulling with 10 pounds in your hands, that the horse couldn't possibly be comfortable having, you know, a combined 20 pounds of pressure against its gums while mm -hmm. you're trying to ask it to do something, right? <laughs> yes. So it's just it's just amazing to me how far we've come and that there seems to be this disconnect between people that, you know, when they're not on the poor animal's backs, they're doing everything they possibly can do to, you know, to show you how much they love these creatures and show the horses, but yet they've been trained by people who've told them that, well, you know, when you're in the saddle, this is what you do. You know, they have to be made to do what you're going to do. 
And as a person who's ridden horses, you know, in you know, pretty much every kind of horse sport there is from the time I was a child, you know, I just you know, learned that, you know, when you're out there, because I was always the kid that, that got put on the horses that were stoppers and this kind of stuff, you know, yep. and how I'm in my early career, because I was the kid you could put on. I have really long legs, you know, and I could wrap <laughs> them around the horse, and I've been doing it since I was a child. And I could make them go, but I would come away sick to my stomach because my father never, who was a great rider, you know, didn't teach me that. I mean, what, you know, what I teach now is what I learned from my father. And I had to go back and, you know, when I began to ride professionally and ride with professionals. And once again, from the very beginning, I'm talking about going back to the 70s, it was already this you know, adversarial approach to the horse, you know, mm -hmm. that it's, you know, that's we're making it do something rather than, you know, the classical ideal of which I came to learn in many years to figure out what that actually meant, that we could get the horse to be, to accompany us and, and be a companion in this work that we do, you know, just like a dog goes out with you. Not that it's different than what a dog does, but they, you know, when you really ride a horse that really tries and is trying for you, it's such a totally different experience than one that wants to kill you. you know? Yes, yes. That you're, you know, you're barely making the ride go, or you're, you know, you're, you're thankful that you get by at the end of the day. Like mm -hmm. you, boy, I went through that ride. What about the next one? Well, you know. And as I said, I've been in this business long enough to know that if you ride that way long enough, you know, I'm pretty old at this point, and uh, I don't have many of my contemporaries left because, quite frankly, many of them either got destroyed, you know, by bad riding or, you know, or, or accidents or whatever the case may be. Because mm -hmm. if, if you keep riding in a bad, you know, it's like the person who puts the bullet to their head, the gun, and pulls the, the trigger, you know, with one shot in it, you know, <laughs> Russian set or whatever yes. you call it. That's what you're doing. Like when you ride out, I mean, I quit fox hunting because I got tired of waiting for the ambulances to pick the people up because... Mm. We started getting all these people in the hunt field who had been trained as what we call in America, you know, show ring hunters. And they thought because they could go around, you know, on a flat jumper, you know, around a bunch of three foot fences that they could ride cross country, you know, and yes. ride the hounds. And, you know, they would come out on these horses. And I can't tell you how many I, you know, once again, I stopped doing it because I got tired of waiting for the ambulances. Mm, mm, mm. I'm just thinking, you know, because you said your father taught a lot of the principles you use now. I was thinking it came from um, Nuno Olivero. But tell us about how you got started with the trip over there. What made you go over there and how long were you there for? Just tell us a little bit about that trip. Well, the whole thing that drew it was that basically, as I said, the way I ride now was yeah. what my father taught me and all about mm. stretching horses. And that's how we rode. When I was a kid, we had a sail barn. My father had been a trainer on the East Coast, um, top jumper trainer. He was the trainer for Joe Lewis, the boxer of all people back okay. in the day. And and he went into World War II at 45 years old. And this is one of the biggest things that most people today do not understand, that at the end of World War II, there were almost no horses left in the world. That wow. Europe and America, we all of the horses. Halfway through World War II, they closed down Fort Riley Cavalry Depot and butchered 10,000 horses and sent all the meat to the troops, as did, you know, all over Europe. And that's, you know, the story about Patton saved the white horses from being, you know, being slaughtered for meat because the world was starving. So, of course, here were these all these animals that basically there was no more use for. The automobile made made the horse obsolete. So, you know, to a starving population of the world, they were just food on the hoof, if you will. 
And most people don't realize that that we lost all the really great riders with few exceptions. It was only these few people, you know, the wealthiest people that were able to keep, you know, some keep some stock and that sort of thing. And were the beginnings of when the horse business came to came begin to come back. Mm -hmm. you know? Like on the East Coast of the United States, it all started with, you know, those very wealthy people that fox hunted and this sort of things who started the whole hunter jumper show ring thing, as you will. Because that was just something that hunt clubs started doing in a, as a summertime thing is what led to what we have now. But uh, anyway, it, it, that's people don't realize that we lost all of that knowledge and we lost all those great horsemen. And uh, many of the places uh, that we came to think about that had great reputations in the past, you know, turned out to be, well, let me back up, but this was what led me to travel around the world. As yes. I said, I rode for a lot of professional trainers, you know, when I, I went to college and I was the captain of the show jumping team and people started asking me to show horses for them. And, and I started riding for a professional trainer. And, uh, but I just, I, as I said, I left every day sick to my stomach, you know, this guy or woman actually it was, you know, yelling at me to, you know, rip that horses out, you know, mm. the kind of stuff that you hear in those show ring and those hunter people, you know, that, that have this abusive attitude and i actually got off the horse one day and just handed the woman the reins and said you ride it and walked out and never came back and uh because i just couldn't stand it because it mm -hmm. all it seemed like was i mean these animals that i'd grown to love my whole life they've been my best friends growing up and my horses were my friends i spent all my time on horseback you know through my childhood and uh you know so it was like i had never experienced people just whipping and beating horses. I mean, this was something that, you know, I mean, my father used to take me around as a child and we, we grew up, we moved to Kentucky from New Jersey when I was four or five. That's where I got my first horse when I was five. And uh, yep. my father would take me around to these saddlebred barns and Tennessee walking horse barns and show me the horrible things that he did to these horses. You know, he would actually mm. take me and show, look what they're doing to this animal, you know, because he was he was completely a gather. So that's sort of what, you know, began my interest at a very young, young age of looking at what was really going on with horses, you know, and looking behind the, you know, behind the curtain, so to speak. Yeah, know? yeah. So yeah. anyway, trying to get back to what I had begun with, which was what I do now, which mm, is, you know, mm. the sane, you know, humane approach to working with animals. And uh, and I went on the quest to find out what that was. And I, I, you know, I read every book that you could read on the subject. There were no like today. There's no videotapes. There's no YouTube. There was, you know, you heard about the Spanish Riding School. You know, and I saw the old yes. books of the Spanish Riding School and read them, of course. And uh, so I set out to go to Europe and uh, and find out what the truth was, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had learned about. Nuno Oliveras from some of his other students. I went to an instructor school for a year um, after college that was run by the woman who used to run Morven Park, if you remember Morven Park on the East Coast. Yes, I do actually. Yeah. So um, that was, uh, what was her name? Something Rose, Mary Rose. Mm -hmm. and she was a she was an MFA from England. And uh, anyway, it was, it was an interesting time to go through it. And it was an introduction to kind of her idea of what dressage was. Once yep. again, I came to realize I needed to look further, but they were all people who were going over to Nuno's. And, and, and I was beginning, once again, I was reading all the books that were, there were to read on the subject and reading all the old, you know, the Steinbrecht and this and that, and all the French ones and comparing the schools and reading all about that and 
trying, but it was always difficult, you know, because in those days, because there were no videotapes, we had nothing that we could see of this work, you know. Um, we saw horses at the circus, and we saw horses, you know, um, well, once again, what there was here, and there wasn't much of it, and it didn't, it actually got off to the start in America in a bad way and with people that that were not so good, if you will, that, yep. you know, realized but they came here because there was a market that they could niche themselves into. And they quite frankly, many of them weren't very good. Mm-hmm. And I went through all the ones that there were here in America and I actually went to a clinic with, you know, at the Potomac Horse Center before I went to Portugal. So I went to that clinic first and I rode a horse and I certainly thought it was the most interesting thing, at least it was a humane kind approach to the animals, you know, yep. and the connection and this sort of thing. And and uh, and I before I ever re- ever studied with him, I actually read his book, Reflections on Equestrian Art, which should should be in in everyone's library. And if any of you can find some of his oldest books that were never actually printed in in English when he was actually really teaching and had the big school, you know, outside of Lisbon and stuff. And uh, in, in all the pictures, he has all of the students stretching their horses, you know, in the in that very way that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, Nuno and Egon von Neindorf were the two top riders in the world after World War II. And they both quit competition back then, you know, in probably 1950. I don't remember the exact date, but they both walked away at about the same time saying that they did not like the direction the sport was going. And that was all the way back then. And they were considered the two greatest riders in the world and still to this day are by mm-hmm. those who have enough education to realize who they were you know, and what they had done. And there's their original, um, what I've come to know now, because I went there and I, and I've studied, you know, and read the books, you know, uh, which every should be in everyone's also library. I mean, the two books that I really suggest is, the book is written by a man named Eric Herberman, who was a student of Egon von Neindorf, and he very faithfully wrote down von Neindorf's system, which is pretty much, you know, what I would say, what I follow. If I said, if I read something, I said, you know, I was doing this before I read the book, when I read it, and went, well, here we're on the same, you know, my influence comes from back at the French classical writers, you know, like you know, Fritz was the French who invented the Chambon, for instance, and the mm-hmm. idea that horses need to develop and needed to have their necks out in front of them and not pulled into their bodies, if you will. And they needed to develop in that system rather than, you know, what's wrong with our system today is people just take the horse and crunch it into a frame, you know, and start, start driving it like they're driving a car, if you will. And unfortunately there's no suspension on the animal, you know, so of course all the joints fall apart and that's why we see such a, you know, short lived careers of all these horses today, if you will. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, I digress a little bit, but that's what led me to Nuno, and I went there the first time. And from there, I went on. I studied at Mafra in Portugal. I studied at uh, the Cadre Noir in France. I went to the Spanish Riding School and spent two weeks. And I came away from all of those places still pretty confused because no one was doing—I wasn't seeing the ideal that I had in my mind until— because what a lot of people don't realize about Nuno Oliveira, he was a very interesting person to go study with because most people don't realize that he retired and he only went back into training horses because he was completely broke. So by the time he came back into the business and he, you know, he had a big supporter in, in Phyllis Field 
And she basically is the one who brought him back and got him, gave him horses to train and got him back going again. And, uh, you know, what I try to tell people is it was kind of like studying with Picasso in his last days, you know, yep. it was well worth it, uh-huh. but it wasn't what the experience would have been 20 years earlier when he really was interested and he really was still teaching and, you know, and, uh, if that makes any sense, like mm-hmm. he was in, but on this, you could see him perk up. So it was worth like, you know, I can tell you three or three, four things, like an instance that made all the difference in the world to my riding, for instance, um, you know, I was a guy who got nines and tens on his position in dressage, you know, and regularly and, you know, thought I had, you know, the elegant seat, whatever, you know. And sure. So I'm riding along and he, he would sit up in his in his little tower there, not tower, but the little gallery, you know, and he stops, puts his hand on, he stops and he leans over a little window and whispers down to me and says, stop trying to look so elegant and just ride the horse I mean, just like that. <laughs> and, it, and it just came over me, you know, that it was right. I was so, I was so trying to have a perfect position that I was stiffening my body in the process. And I realized that that's the hard, you know, anybody can make themselves stand like a soldier. It's being able to stand like a soldier for 10 hours to where you can relax into your own joints, if you will, you know, and your muscles can hold themselves together that long, you know, and it's kind of that same kind of thing. So, in uh, it totally just the, that sentence alone was worth all the time I spent going there and and the you know and all the above. I mean those few yep. little moments that certain things clicked. Another moment, if you've ever read his book Reflections on Equestrian Art, there's a picture on the front of it that of him doing Lavad mm-hmm. with a horse named Jabut, and doing Lavad on that horse is what crystallized in my mind for me. And the horse was like 30 years old. So all these horses, by the time people my age, which is also why you have a wide variance in the people that say that they're, you know, what I tell people is that I don't, I studied Nuno Oliveira. I studied what he did and how he approached what he did. And I studied his entire life and what he did from the beginning of it to the end of it. You know, the the lessons were just in terms of what you you know, you got these few moments, you know, and it was worth it, like on this Jabut horse, which now is probably 30 years old. But when all you had to do was just stiffen your back and the horse would just lift itself up into the most perfect levade imaginable, exactly as he did it, and, you know, with absolutely slack rein, lowering his hindquarters, hocks nearly to the ground, and you could feel him just curl his withers up underneath you. Because in order to do that, that's what they have to do. The back has to literally be pushed up underneath you and you could sit like that for what it felt like forever and then when you just relaxed your back the horse would just come down and okay walk. <laughs> yep know? yep and you know that moment for me crystallized what collection was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what it was you know it's not shortening a horse's stride <laughs> if you will which is what people seem to think it is if you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to ask you, you know, the difference, because you'd studied with a few different schools, what the yeah. main differences were. I think you've sort of just explained it, but anything else you'd like to add? In talking about differences... In the difference in the different schools, but mm. really the different, I think, uh, I think Reiner Klimke said it well when he said that uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, you know, there was kind of this school and that school, but at the end of the day, the really great riders all end up at about the same place. You know, we okay. just, they have the idea that their legs need to be relaxed. You can't hold against the mouth of the horse, you know, and if you look at, if you look at many of the different, you know, teachers who sort of were the fathers of dressage, you know, like Boucher and, you know, Boucher, all the junk that Boucher did in the beginning of his career, he's the one who invented the roll cream idea, mm-hmm. you know, but at the end of his life, he totally rejected it as an idea in his writings. That's when he returned to what he, what he, his last, uh, system was called, you know, he called it his system in bedroom slippers. Yes. And that's really, you know, what Mr. Olivero is all about. Your legs have to be draped down the side of the horse in relaxation, but yet you have to keep a core engagement, you know. Mm. And the thing that was confusing, you, there's a couple of little videos on YouTube um, for people who are really interested in the history of all this and why it's so confusing. Um, there's a couple of videos on YouTube that are grainy that are, are from Nuno Oliveira at his heyday when he was doing one of his exhibitions and he does Levad and some other things. And you see what he looked like, and he had a perfect position. His back was absolutely straight. None of this sway back, you know, with his belly out in front of him with a cigarette. I mean, unfortunately, you know, what people think of him now, they imitate Nuno when he couldn't ride anymore. Mm-hmm. And he knew he couldn't ride anymore. He used to tell people all the time, oh, God, please don't take my picture. I look terrible. And he knew it. And really, the riding, this is what was so confusing, because he and his son rode at the same time. They rode two horses each. And every morning, you got up and you, and we watched, and the two of them brought in two horses and rode and trained them together. And it was like watching two different things. His son was flying around the arena in what I would call working gait, you know, in real gait. Yep. And Nuno was kind of like going around in this weird kind of slow motion thing where it was just, you know, this weird kind of passage trot. But what I came to know is that he was in so much pain, mm. he really couldn't ride anymore. And he mm-hmm. was putting, he was, you know, he was putting on a show for the people that came but the show was not the show that you would have seen 20 years ago because he couldn't do it. You know? okay. And it led to a lot of confusion about his teaching. You know, it took me and it was only and here I'll tell you, this is the, you know, where it all came together for me is that he arranged for me to go to Paris and spend some time with Michel Henriquet. And I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's the one who wrote the book, 25 Years of Correspondence with Nuno Oliveira. And he was a wealthy banker who lived in this beautiful chateau with this beautiful riding stable. And Nuno had come there four times a year for a month for 25 years. Uh, So he had horses. So Nuno arranged for me to go there. And when I saw those horses, then I went, okay, now I get it. Because in Portugal, Nuno had a bunch of young horses he wasn't getting anywhere with, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. because he was just too sore, I think, really to ride them. And he had all these old broken down horses that were the school horses that half of them, you know, they still went around. They still did some interesting things, but their backs were enough. They were, you know, they were barely trotting around the arena in some cases, if you will. So when I saw what these horses were doing, then I put it together. Well, you know, I could see how Nuno was trying to start these young horses that he was starting in those days. And as I said, he never, he died shortly thereafter. He, I don't think he ever got anywhere, particularly with this sort of batch of young horses. Cause I was, I went there for five years in a row and he was sort of, you know, he was traveling a lot and, you know, we kept coming, I, I would go there for a month every year, uh, usually at Christmas time. And, okay. uh, and, uh, because that was just for me, that was California. That was the easiest time. That's the rainy season here. I could get away because my barn would usually be flooded half the yeah. time. 
So anyway, but, uh, you know, over those five years, I saw that things were not, you know, he was looking worse. The horses weren't getting anywhere. The young horses, were, mm-hmm. you know, that he was training because he was gone most of the time. And, you know, he didn't live very long. I mean, he died at 64. He died in Australia at a clinic, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I talked to him, I think, like the week before he died. I was going to go. He was going to come to Texas and give a clinic, but he died before he got there. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, it was a sad thing. But anyway, understanding that perspective, but seeing those horses in France showed me, okay, well, now I get it. These horses are round. These horses are lowering their hindquarters. These horses are completely relaxed. So mm-hmm. they're, you know, everything that I had always wanted to see in the training of a horse, which I had read about for years and years and years, including the Spanish riding school was the biggest disappointment I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, going there and thinking what, you know, having read the books about yes. it, and then I came to, to to find out the real history of it, you know, which I won't go into here, but, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, and let's just say that since World War II, it has not been what it once was, you know, and uh, it, it's, uh, it was disappointing to see you know, horses, I, you know, I was there for private sessions, you know, that the public doesn't get to see because I was mm-hmm. there as a rider. And uh, I, I had to walk away and just say, well, you know, I, I can't watch any more of this. And uh, anyway, so that's what led me to where we are. And seeing those horses in France of Mr. Henri Kays, that's an interesting book to read. Once again, 25 years of uh, correspondence with Nuno Oliveira. Um, and he was a very famous French rider. He only died just only a few years ago. He lived to be nearly 100, I believe. Okay, okay. I'm just thinking, you know, if you were looking at young riders today, you know, someone who yeah. has got potential, got talent, what are you in particular looking at? You know, and at what age would you see it? And outside of the obvious ability to ride, but their character traits, their personality, what sort of things are you looking for? Well, of course, you know, once again, there's our biggest problem with us today is that, you know, living in this children think they get all society that we live in and are, and deserve everything. You know, it's very interesting to see how, like, you know, when, when I was growing up, you know, and you, people like, you know, the Queen of England was an inspiration. You saw, yes. I mean, my father yes. used to show me pictures of how, look, her kids are out there mucking their own stalls, just mm. like I had to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we really had to groom the horses and we do this. And, and I just think parents who send their children to these horrible riding schools where they have no idea half the time that these horses are being drugged half the time and that they're not really learning anything. And, you know, and the horses are handed to these kids and they trot around and they, you know, they think they know how to ride. And the real sad thing is for the people who aren't, you know, I grew up in a horse family. You know, if, if my father saw a trainer doing some of the things I, I saw a show not long ago and I sat and watched four young people go to hospital from one class, oh, one of which the trainer whipped the horse. The horse wouldn't go in the ring. The trainer ran down the in booth, whipped the horse with it. And no one said a word, whipped the horse repeatedly into the arena the horse kid went off, fell on the, you know, the horse fell on top of the child at the very first fence, which I mean, I couldn't believe that the, you know, that the officials didn't say anything to this trainer whipping this horse. In. And this is at a, you know, this is at the big, you know, national, you know, Indio horse show, mm-hmm. you know, and this kid goes off to the hospital. So it's this, it's, it's, you know, coming in a real sense of, I don't get the real impression that these kids really like horses or love animals, you know mm. I mean? That, and I, that's the biggest thing that I look for. Do these kids really have a feel for this animal or is this animal just another 
you know, trinkets of some kind or other yes. to them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or a status symbol or whatever the case may be. And as I said, you know, the queen used to clean her own stalls and so did her kids. <laughs> you know? yeah. And yeah. they knew that, you know, and, I, and I, I was fortunate enough to fox hunt with a lot of those kind of old families when I was young, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, reading in one of the books talking about how, you know, you, you might be going to be the king of England one day, but this horse is going to tell you the truth. Yep. This is the only creature in your life that's ever going to tell you the truth. Your dog's not going to tell you the truth. This horse will tell you the truth about yourself, mm-hmm. you know. And we used to think, you know, like Winston Churchill, one of my other, you know, great quotes that I love is that, you know, there's nothing, you know, better for the inside of the man than the yes. outside of a horse. You know, mm-hmm. that thing of, but we used that, but that is only true if riding is approached with a respect for the animals and a respect for the sport and what it takes to do it, you know, when you dumb everything down, when kids are handed horses and, you know, when they don't win a blue ribbon, they throw the reins down and walk away, And which I've seen horse shows I, I, more than once, I'm sad to say, you know, and parents follow after them like, oh, you poor darling, yes, we'll mm. buy you another one, you know. Yep. This does nothing. This doesn't make, riding should make you a better person, you know. That's, my, yes. I guess, the core of my teaching is riding should make you a better person. In fact, I was just, uh, and the things that we look at, I encourage my students, you know, what I really look for is, you know, is those people that have that spark and they have that intelligence. And you can tell that they're willing to do the work. Riding is not easy. It takes a great deal of concentration. Like people have told me, well, you know, I'm a concert level pianist. Okay. It took me as long to do this that it did to do that. You know, it took me 20 years to be a decent rider, and it took me 20 years to be a decent piano player. You know, yep. that's what it takes to get the level that you are really fluent at anything. And you know, mm-hmm. if you read any books in the past that tell you about what it takes to, to learn something in your life, that's, the, you know, to really be a master takes 20 years. Yep. And that's what it takes to even think you're you're at that level. And, you know, I've been doing it now. Let's see. This is my, this is my, this will be my 60th year on horseback. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is my 60th year, amazingly enough. And, uh, you know, I'm still learning things about it. I'm still perfecting my technique. You know, my techniques of, I've, I've, uh, I've trained more horses now. You know, I've trained hundreds of horses and, uh, and I've watched, uh, you know, my, whatever I teach is based on, the fact that I, you know, have been fortunate enough to have been in a lab of horse training my entire life. My farm growing up was a, uh, my father, when he got back in the book, into the business after World War II, which is now in the early 60s, we bought a farm in Kentucky and had a sale barn. So my father would buy, as many people did in those days, when the horses started being available, like the horses with the flying tail that you saw the movie about yes, Disney and yes. stuff. Everyone was going out to the West and buying up. That's where the first place we had horses again, were these horses that were coming up out in the West. And my father, as many other jumper trainers did, were going out there and buying up all the big ones. And so my father was doing that. He'd go out and buy 50 horses at a time and bring them back to our farm. And uh, I could have any of them that I wanted, but I had to take care of them. So mm-hmm. you know, I had one or two that I you know, claimed to be mine, and the rest were in pasture and uh, when people wanted to see them we were brought up and they'd say well you know i want to see that one and we would catch that one and get on it and ride it mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. and sometimes these horses have been out in fields for a year you know, without <laughs> anybody on them so okay. uh, let's just say I, I got i got an early very early uh, uh i learned how to keep my shoulders back at a young age <laughs> stop i need to interrupt this chat for a hot off the press notification that is 
that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. All right. Now, just thinking, you know, because you've had, wow, all the things that you've done. If you had to pick one proud moment, is it like one particular time or is it, you know, a series of yes, improvements I can, or, yep. No, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you my, my favorite moment on horseback that yep. I've ever yep. in my entire life. What I would say was the epitome of the greatest ride I ever had, mm-hmm. you know, was, uh, I was fortunate enough to spend a year in Unionville, Pennsylvania, which is where the Cheshire Fox sounds, and I don't know if you're familiar with them. They were, they still are to this day, the best fox hunt in the world. It was an entire county outside of uh, Philadelphia that was bought up by these wealthy families, and and with deeds that it would be kept up for fox hunting for 500 years. And it, I was just there okay. about a month ago. And it's still absolutely beautiful. It's all now in a big trust. Yeah. And that's where Bruce Davidson, the great, okay. uh, the great three-day event rider, comes from. So his yep. family, he married into the family that owned the hunt there. Mm-hmm. So and people like Michael Plum, all those old Olympic riders that mm. you think of, this is the greatest fox hunting in the world. So I was fortunate enough to spend a year there as a trainer for a family. And get to go out fox hunting, you know, with these kind of people on a daily basis, you know, with 125, 150 horses in the field. Galley, in, in Unionville, the entire county, like the size of Los Angeles County, if you will, is all for fox hunting. Every fence has to be 50 feet off of the road. Every fence has to be post and rail. There has to be a jumping panel every, like, 100 yards in all the fences everywhere you go. So you literally... And you have estates like the Campbell Super Estates that's 5,000 acres of mowed grass and post yeah. fences, and you can yeah. literally just gallop as far as you can possibly imagine going. Wow. So I was out. My job was to take these young steeplechase horses off of the racetrack for the family and start fox hunting them. So I'm out there one day. We go on a hunt, and we get on a run. And there's about 125 horses in the whole thing. And I'm at the back because, you know, I'm a worker. So, you know, I'm, I'm at the back mm-hmm. of the thing. But at, the way it works is once you get going, you know, the people who fall behind fall behind. So we had been on a run for about probably 45 minutes. We'd probably gone over like 30 fences or something cross country in varied terrain. And Mrs. Hannum, who was the hunt master at the time, who was the field, the field master at the time and the owner of the hunt, I can see her out ahead of me and we're the only two people left and we're galloping across a big green field and at the edge of the field into the woods there's a coop and there's just a big black hole beyond that and i see she's maybe you know 100 feet in front of me and i see her hit that coop go over and just disappear and i commit to do it and i take the coop and it's an eight foot drop on the other side of it onto a straight it was like the man from snowy river <laughs> the straight the trail on the other side was straight down for probably 100 yards to the bottom of a washout for, with with the river yep and we both galloped down that hill and we got we made it to the bottom pulled up and she looked over at me and said i say that was something wasn't it and i said yes it was and that was <laughs> that was the epitome you know it took 
everything I've ever learned about riding and horses to be able to do that, mm, you know, mm, mm. and uh, and to walk away from it. And, you know, <laughs> and we had a lovely chat back. We walked back, hacked back together and just had a lovely chat with her. She was a wonderful woman who was like 78 years old, still out there fox hunting, you know, jumping for four railer fences and this kind of stuff. So, you know, those were the kind of people that I wanted to emulate. And what I saw was in my search for dressage was that the people that people either understood that horses need to work over their backs or they did not. And unfortunately, dressage moved away from horses working over the back. And now horses are, and they talk about it, but it's rarely happening. Mostly the horses are very hollow, pulled into very shallow frames. They're basically just, you know, they're incredible moving horses, but pulled into very shortened frames that look distorted and lame to me. I mean, none of them have any rhythm. They're throwing their legs all over the place. You know, it, it, it as I grew up in Tennessee and that sort of thing and seeing all that, it looks much more like Tennessee walking horses to me, what I'm seeing in the in the Grand Prix dressage ring today, than it, than it looks like dressage. In fact, it doesn't look like dressage to me. It looks like, well, as I say, it looks like a Tennessee walking horse you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trying to do trying to do a, a, a Spanish walk or something, yep. you know. So, yep. so understanding yep. that thing, and it was always at the core of training was that, you know, dressage was to make a horse that could do anything, you know, that, you, that it wasn't just about trip trotting around in a little ring as we, you know, all those old photographs that we used to see of, you know, those early days of Louis, whoever, the 14th or whoever, trip trotting yes. around on some little hollow sway back horse in a little ring that was 15 meters by 30 meters. You mm. know, those horses were, they were doing what they were calling dressage, but it was really the saddle bred training of its day, if you will. The horses were moving flat footed. You know, even if they got them to piop and prance up and down, they did it in a flat footed way, much as what we see today. You know, a lot of people don't understand about dressage that it wasn't until the cross-country people and the great the great cross-country riders of England were the first people that really solidified the idea of horses over their backs. Um, there was a famous rider, um, Count A-U-R-E-L, I think the name was. I can't remember exactly how to pronounce that, Aural. Um, and it was them, you know, it was only like the late 1900s when this idea of the three-day FN horse that dressage, no, should be about not just something that you can do trip-trotting around a little tiny ring on a flat surface, but something that applies to a horse that's galloping cross-country. Otherwise, mm-hmm. what use is it? You know, it has no value yep. if it has not that. And sadly, we've moved dressage back away from that idea. And if you see, like, the last Olympic Games, I mean, it's really interesting because the dressage for 3D event riders used to be terrible. Now the dressage riders of the 3D eventing are way better riders. And if you watch, if you watch Michael Jung ride, I mean, his dressage work is way better than anything I saw any of the Grand Prix riders do, you know, mm-hmm. in the so-called Grand Prix of today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because they're flowing over the back, so it's moving and it has rhythm. It has real beauty, you know. So getting back to what we look for in students is that ability to to perceive beauty, even, if you will, you know, because what I try to tell my people all the time, you know, is you should be reading books, you should be, you know, studying art, you should be expanding your mind that will make you a better rider. And by virtue, writing will make you a better whatever you are, you know? mm-hmm. because you will learn to control your emotions. Isn't that what gets in everybody's way? I mean, if you look at what, you know, people would just really learn how to ride it would do them a great deal of good if you will you know yeah, it's kind of yeah. what because you have to get yourself out of the way in order to do it because if you can't get yourself out of the way if you will you're never going to be able to make that kind of subtle connection and make the kind of decisions and react 
in the, with the speed necessary, you know, to do the things that we think of as upper level riding and whether that's riding cross country or racing or whatever it is, it's the same thing. I don't see any difference. Okay. When it's all it's the same thing. The horse must, you know, whether a horse gallops over its back or it gallops hollow, a horse goes around a ring hollow or it goes over around the ring over its back. But at the end of the day, what the big difference is hollow horses win races. Yeah. Once in a while, hollow horses win jumping competitions. A lot of hollow horses win dressage competitions, but at the end of the day, the horses fall apart, you know? So, hmm. you know, what I think is a great horseman. I think a great horseman is the one who can keep his horse going for the longest. You know, I look at people like a Marcus Enning, you know, from Germany, who just retired that last Grand Prix horse of his. He'd been he'd been showing the horse for twenty years at Grand Prix and retired it sound. Yeah, that to me is horseman. That's horsemanship. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Horsemanship is the being able to manage these creatures so that they're not just expendable toys. You know? mm-hmm. 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 Thinking about where we're going, what do you think is the biggest challenge in dressage moving forward? Dressage as a sport, you know, as a competitive sport. Well, there's no reason dressage always was. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be cheapened to be competitive. We just cheapened it to make more people able to do it. The Mm. problem is, I think a great deal of people, you know, well, once again, if you have learned to ride by holding 20 pounds against your hands the whole time you ride, you need to learn to ride all over again. I mean, the sense of, you know, it's like this. And, you know, and every time we've ever had a good coach that's tried to teach us that, you know, and I go back to even like uh, Jack Lagoff when he was our, you know, three-day event coach, we lost him. He was the greatest three-day event coach. And the only time we've ever had a great team was when he was our coach. And, you know, and he's had some of the, some of the people wanted to use draw range and wanted to go to these modern methods and he wouldn't let them. And that's why he, he ended his tenure because some of the powerful you know, people in the sport, you know, who who are paying the bills wanted to do it another way, you know, mm-hmm. much to the demise of the sport. Yep. I mean, it's just like even for jumping, if you read Bert, Bert Nemethy, for instance, was the guy who introduced uh, the idea of draw reins, you know, to mm-hmm. horses. And in his book, but he goes on and on in his book about how you can use draw reins like to stabilize the head and neck and position out but they should never be put between the horse's legs. They should go from the side forward, you know, kind of like yes. people think of those Vienna range or something, but they should never be put between the horse's legs. Well, where mm-hmm. does everybody put them now? Yep. Between the horse's legs. So the, all the horses end up with their broken necks, with their chins pinned down to their chest, you know, yep. in a frame that actually doesn't allow them to jump because they mm-hmm. can't jump through their backs from that position. They can spring off of their shoulders harder, but, you know, so... Am I answering your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. It's sort of like we've got to end with a solution. You know, it's all right saying, well, there's problems yeah, here, but... Well, that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. So the solution is exactly, and maybe that's what you guys are trying to do. It sounds like you have an online thing going. So that's what I have tried to do is I have I've looked at the world. I started to write a book, mm-hmm. and I'm, I've, I'm very, you know, sort of... Um, computer literate and <laughs> thinking one day watching how the YouTube thing has evolved. Yep. 
And I suddenly realized that I could reach many more people because, of course, people don't read books anymore mm. um, much, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, all the good horse books are all going out of print. Yep. So anyway, I realized that I could reach more people doing the video thing, and mm-hmm. we've grown into you know a huge movement. Our thing yep. is now in number seventh in the world. On, this on is the Art Internet. to Ride. We have 40 yep. associate trainers at Art yep. to Ride. Yep. Um, ArtToRide.com and uh, we have 40 associate trainers around the world. We have clinics. We've, I've been in Russia. I've trained in practically every country in Europe at this point, Australia. And it grows between 100 and 150 new members every day. Mm-hmm. And I just set out, which I think should be everyone's goal. I, you know, I set out to create a site where if you didn't know a thing about horses and wanted to learn how to do this right, that you could go there and you could learn everything that you would ever need to know and see people doing it correctly and watch other people go through the same process. Yep. And it's worked beautifully. And that's what people are doing. And there's a site, you know, the Facebook sites where people can join, where if you have a question, uh, you know, my 40 associate trainers around the world answer those questions within minutes that you might put up a question on the site. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to create a reference point for anyone in the world who wants this information. And if you don't have a dime, it's now available to you. And what about videos? If people are riding, they can take videos of their riding, send you that? Yes. Now, yep. we also have a critique service for a yes. longer thing. Like, if you want to send me a half-hour video, there's a there's a critique service on there mm-hmm. that you can pay for that service. But once again, if you just want a question, you know, that, that is a pay service. But the other is completely free. Okay. And just watching every day people are posting videos of their horses and asking questions. And then, so then all the ones that they send me to critique also go online. So that's one of the things that I, you know, I once in a while will tell somebody that, that, you know, once again, what they told, you know, what they sent just was, you know, so bad, if you will, that mm. they need to go back and try again before we even think about putting something up. Okay. And they always go back and do it and come back and improve it. But that's okay, only been good. a couple of times yeah. that I've done that. But, mm-hmm. you know, everyone, because I want everyone to learn from everyone else, you know, yes. and get their egos out of the way and, uh, you know, get also what they think they know out of the way. Because unfortunately, everyone now lives in this world where, and I'll tell you this, I just had someone come to my clinic who had just gone through the USDF judges program. And I've been saying this stuff for years. She went through the program and at the end of the, and she said everything that they told her through the program was exactly what I was teaching in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And she said at the end of the program, they literally told the applicants that, if they taught like that, if they judged like that, they'd never be hired. And this is what's happened in your wow. You know, Klaus Paul was our coach very briefly, and his thing, if we want to improve the sport, no one has to know who the judges is. That judging has to be from a pool, so the judges will be unafraid. The way it is now today is the wealthy, the wealthy students are choosing the judges. If you give any wealthy client a bad score or any upper-level rider who's known a bad score, you will never judge again. It's as simple. That's how it is. Mm, and it's mm. basically corrupt, and everybody knows that it's corrupt. And it, and even the USDF knows that it's corrupt. So we have to change it. So one of the things that we're doing is we are starting the World Dressage Federation. So we are starting an entirely new dressage federation, you know, based on sound principles of classical work and uh, and the rules thereof will be that, you know, and, and design much more... Uh, we'll start off with horse shows online. We will have physical horse shows. At physical horse shows, it will be 
you know, much more like eventing rules used to be where yes. trainers are not allowed in the sense that, you know, when you come, if you, if you can't ride and warm up your own horse, you have no business being at a horse show. You yep. know, yep. you can't have a trainer screaming things at you from the edge of the line. Like, and that's how it always was in the venting because, mm-hmm. you know, this is what the problem is. We get people coming to horse shows and they get this idea from the time they're, that they have to have somebody holding their hand every second. Mm-hmm. I mean, once again, if you can't ride your horse well enough to go to a horse show, then you shouldn't be at the horse show. You okay. know what I mean? If you yep. if you can't warm up your own horse with some reasonable level of safety and, and ability, what are you doing trying to ride in a horse show? But the horse show people realize, the people who put on horse shows, which is now just this big industrial deal – they realized that you could charge kids to go over poles on the ground. Uh, kids yes. are having to pay $100 to go around and have somebody lead them over a pole on the ground. The trainers mm-hmm. love it. They get paid for doing it. Yep. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's what led to all this nonsense of, you know, these people being so trainer, you know, once again, it's, you know, that's why if you ever rode in the hunt field, at the end of the day, what I loved about the hunt field is that, you know, you have to ride. And if you can't ride, you're not going to make it. There's mm-hmm. no one's going to make it for you. There's no one's, you know yelling commands at you from the side if you don't have the skills you're going to get hurt and unfortunately yes. i mean once again that's why i quit fox hunting because there got to be too many people getting hurt because they weren't they didn't have they weren't getting the level of education they needed to be able to come out and do what they were trying to do you know? yep same yep. thing with eventing. Yep. that's why yes. we have so many people getting with eventing we took out all the roads and tracks and the steeplechase which used to eliminate all yes. the riders who had yes. no business being there yep take all that and now they just get to go cross country Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. you know we're having four deaths a year at three-day eventing that's crazy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's yep. why yep. you know? so many questions i can keep asking so much we can keep talking about <laughs> um i'd love to have you back again i'd love to to talk and just explore some of these areas that you've talked about you know you've just got so much information you can talk to us give to us but if people would like to contact you the best place is art to ride and that's a r t the digit two the number two and then ride.com. Yep. Exactly right. Yeah. And once they get to there, that will lead them to the Facebook site. Yes. Which there are numerous ones. There's an open Facebook site, and there's another one called Fans and Followers that you have okay. to ask to join, which is okay. really where the real community is of people who are doing this on a daily basis. And, okay, good. And it's a wonderful good. group, a really supportive group of people, and I suggest anybody who's uh, who uh, is uh, looking for a nice bunch of horse people, that's the place to go. It's all kept very positive. All right, perfect. All right, Will. Well, I think if people would like to talk to you too, those contact details will be on your page, which will be horsechats.com slash William Faber. And now your your name, it's Faber, F-A-E-B-E-R, Faber. Yeah, you can say Faber or Faber, either one. Yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe just go to Horse Chats and search for William and you'll find it. (laughs) Or search for Will, you'll find it. Yeah, yeah. Listen, it's been lovely chatting with you, and uh, if you're ever in our area, stop in and see us. Love to. Okay, good to talk to you, Will, and hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Talk to you again. That was fun. Okay, bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 